Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. November 9th and 10th. Doesn't that sound like a long time away? Next week is November, FYI. Anybody that's like me that's like, how did it become November already? I thought it was still the summer. But at any rate, uh, November 9th and 10th is uh, Southbridge Serves. Today you're going to have an opportunity to sign up. There's going to be a table out in the lobby. If you didn't see it on the way in, make sure you stop by on the way out. Uh, if for some reason you're not able to get to the table, that'll be online on our website as well. You can sign up. And if you don't know what Southbridge Serves is, just a simple announcement is this. It's a weekend where we try and do as much service as we can in our community to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, we want to spread the glory of his name. We exist for the sake of his glory. We want to make him famous in our city, and that's one of the ways that we do that. And so we want everybody in our church, if possible, on November 9th or 10th to find a spot to sign up and find maybe a spot where it's something you're really passionate about. Um, if not, I don't think Jesus necessarily was passionate about washing feet, but he wanted to serve us, and so he did that. And so maybe we can serve our city in ways that are uh, stretchy a little bit as well. And so you go out there in the lobby, take a look at some of the opportunities that are out there, and, uh, and if you just show up, we'll let you do that too. But we want you to sign up so we can have a shirt for you and be, be ready and tell the people that, are, that, that we're going to serve who's coming, how many people will be there. And so we're excited about that. Excited? Yes. All right. That doesn't sound very exciting. All right. Anybody yell at football yesterday? Come on, this is Jesus we're talking about here. Um, I want to give you an announcement before we jump into the Word this morning, though. Uh, those of you who saw my social media uh, this past night, last night, I guess is when I posted it, I'm going to tell you the day that we're going to have our grand opening at our new campus, uh, just a mile down the street on Strickland Road, 12621. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I got it right. Yeah, all right. I know the address. I'm new over there too, but I know the address. Uh, just a mile down the road, we own a campus, so those of you didn't know that. And uh, we're planning on moving into it, and so I'm going to tell you what that date is in just a moment. <laughs> but first I want to say, uh, we've been a church for 11 and a half years. It's been portable. And so some people, when they hear this announcement, it's like this light at the end of the tunnel all of a sudden op opened up. They're on our setup and our teardown teams. And so I want to just give them a thank you before I make that announcement. Will you just thank people for using that? Yeah. And that's the, not just those who did it this morning, but who's done it historically throughout our church, have ever helped tear something down, set something up. Even if you just saw the band one time, you came up and rolled cables. Thank you so much uh, for doing that. We appreciate that so much. Grabbing, I was talking to one guy who was talking about the car he was going to buy, and he had to make sure I had the tow package so he could tow trailers, because we tow trailers and do that stuff. No more. You can get a, a Prius now, like whatever you want to do. <laughs> Um, we are just so thankful for you and uh, thankful too. I just want you to know th I'm thankful a lot of what's happened here. Uh, people just following the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, one, some of the leaders of the Covenant Church that were part of that, people that are historically given sacrificially, financially to our church, uh, just the way that God worked and bringing us to the spot where we've been meeting here at the school. Uh, there's been a lot of exciting things that God's done over 11 and a half years to get us to this spot. And when we moved to that campus, that doesn't make us a church, by the way. We're already a church community of people that are living on mission together to try and reach the city for Christ, and we gather together to worship him, that, that we are a church. And so, but this is a new chapter in the life of our church. And so the day it's going to happen, he's going to drag this out as long as he can, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, I am. No, no. Uh, what we're going to do, and I told you, next week is November, and uh, we were originally hoping that by the, in the fall we were going to move into this campus, but we didn't announce a date to you because we didn't want to be that church that announces a date and then keeps moving it. But before I announce the date, let me just tell you this. We still need you to pray, okay? A bunch of stuff still has to happen and come into place for all this to, to work. But I know that you've prayed before and God's shown up and done stuff. 
And so you be praying, so that's your part of the bargain. And uh, our plan is that on December 9th, we're gonna have our grand opening over at the new campus. And so, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. That's six weeks from today. So set up a teardown team, that's five more weeks of setting up tearing down. That gives you six weeks to think about who you're gonna be inviting. The auditorium's gonna be about twice the size of this auditorium that we're in. In the, in the days coming ahead, I'm gonna give you some more information about service times changing a little bit, uh, praise the Lord parking lot team and bridge kids check in and all that. We're gonna tweak that so we have a little bit more space uh, in between those things and, and lots of stuff's gonna happen. We're gonna have an orientation party where we're gonna bring everybody over to the campus and uh, just get you to know what's going on over there so you know different buildings, what's taking place, even if you don't normally serve there. So all that's coming, but right now just be praying be praying towards the December 9th date. That's six weeks. So five more weeks to set up teardown, six weeks to invite folks. And in six weeks, we start a new chapter in the life of our church. And so that's going to be exciting as well. Amen? Amen? All right. We're looking forward to it. But that doesn't mean that God's on hold for five weeks. So God's still at work, right? So we're still going to open up the Bible this morning. Unless you veto it, you veto it. I'm still going to preach just so you know. All right. We in? You in for preaching? All right, we're going to open up the Bible to John chapter 19 in just a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into the message. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Uh, thank you. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for your provision. Um, and I thank you for these people. I thank you for the, the unique individuals that you've brought together to form one body. And uh, God, I pray that people's hearts would be encouraged today just from being together and singing about your empty tomb and uh, thinking about your cross and... And Father God, I pray that your name, I pray as I preach, that your name would be exalted, that you, your fame would spread in our hearts, and God, that you would you just fill us up with your glory, that it would overflow into those that we come into, kind of like Moses going up on the mountain, that our faces would be shining. I pray when we leave this place, God, that we would know you more than we did before we came in. Will you change us? Don't let us be the same. Help us not to just preach about encounters, but to have an encounter with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I know that we have people in our church that come from all kinds of different spots spiritually. I know some of you come and you're skeptical about Jesus. You're not yet a follower of Jesus. I totally understand that. Maybe you're investigating. Maybe your spouse made you come to church. Maybe somebody said they'd buy you lunch and it was like a deal and you're like, free lunch, sounds cool. I can endure anything for an hour. It's totally cool, whatever. I get that. But some of you know Jesus as your savior. And so I'm gonna ask just you a question this morning. And I'm going to ask you if you want to know Christ. And I want you to respond verbally. You don't always respond verbally. I know some of you, the only way you can respond verbally in a message is to say amen. If you want to say amen, that's great. If you want to say me, that's great. If you want to say I do, I want to know Christ, that's fine. But how many of you here want to know Christ? I want to know Christ. All right, all right, good. I know there's some that are here. I hope that you read your Bible throughout the week, not just here when we come together on Sunday mornings and not just even just those verses. I hope you read your Bible on your own because it's, God, it's actually how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. And, and so I hope you come in and you encounter that. And if you do, you know what it's like that sometimes you read a verse and it like makes the load that you're carrying through life a little bit lighter. And sometimes verses are inspiring to you. And sometimes it gives you just what you need to like make it through the day. And then sometimes you read a passage of scripture and it smacks you in the face. Have you ever had that? It like stops you in your tracks and you're like, that's not me. Like I'm, I'm opposite of what this is saying. And it's, it's like, it can even wreck you in moments. And every once in a while you read a passage of scripture and it does both. It both it's like inspiring and I want that, but I'm not there. It like stops you there too. I've had a passage of scripture and some of you know what this is like if you've been walking for Jesus for some time. That's been like that in my life for the last 20 years. I'm 42 years old for all of you who thought I was 25. I understand, I get it. <laughs> And for the last 20 years, like I've been a Christian for a little bit over 20 years, and there's been this one verse that has just like stuck with me. 
And to give you the context for it, it's not our passage for today. It's in Philippians chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there, but you can, but it'll be up on the screen in just a moment. And what happens is there's this guy. His name is Paul. He's actually in prison while he's writing this passage of Scripture. And what he ends up, he shares in the Scripture that at one time, his life was all about himself. His values were about him being popular, being religiously popular, <laughs> using God for his own selfish gain. And that he wanted to like, achieve, get all the degrees, like accomplish all this stuff. And then God had an encounter with him on what was called the Damascus Road, where he encountered the living Christ and totally transformed his life. And then he says, all my values changed. All that stuff that I thought was important, that's wasting my life. He said, in fact, I consider that a loss. And so those of you who said you want to know Christ, I ask you not just about knowing Christ, is there anything in your life that you'd be willing to lose everything else for? That's how Paul felt about knowing Christ. And that's what he's just said in this, this passage right before the verse I'm going to read to you, which is Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. It's in the NIV up here on the screen. And this is the newer NIV, um, the translation I originally, 20 years ago, learned that it was the 1984 version. I was kicking it old school back then. I'll tell you what that said that's a little bit different in just a moment, but look what Paul says. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So let's just break that down for a moment. He says, I want to know Christ. The word he uses there for know is not, give me more information. Let me get my manuscripts out. It's like, I want to know the person of Jesus. He's a real, he's a real guy, and he wants a real relationship with me, and I want to know him. That's what he's saying there. And it's a dynamic relationship. So that means it changes from day to day. And the way that I relate with him one day might be different than the way that I relate with him another day in different circumstances and things are happening. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But our relationship is dynamic. And I want an intimate relationship with him. And I hope if you said me or I do or I want to know Christ, that that's, that's what you're saying. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want to know that? And who wouldn't want to know the power of the resurrected Christ at work in your life? That means victory over sin. That means, the, the, like, actually see when you're praying, see answered prayers. We had a, uh, one guy, I challenge you to go to his Facebook page. Todd Bachman shared a, a story that we had a prayer service a little over a month ago. God healed him. Who doesn't want it? Yeah, if you can give him a hand. Give the Lord a hand. Go to his Facebook page. Check it out. He'll tell this whole story on there. Who wouldn't want to know healing power? Like, everybody wants to know the power of the resurrection. It's the power to transform you into the image of Jesus. That's what the resurrection power is. And who doesn't want that? I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. It's inspiring, but it's the next part that's so convicting to me. And he says here, and participation in his sufferings. The old school translation, the old NIV said fellowship of his sufferings. I like that they changed it. And I know that fellowship is part of our, our name as a church, but most people don't know what fellowship means. Fellowship, a lot of people, even church people think that fellowship is like cookies and punch after church or like if you go to a modern church, it's like inflatables and gourmet coffee after church and you hang out with one another and because we ate a hot dog together or whatever we had, kale sandwich or whatever's the thing now. <laughs> like now we had fellowship with one another. No, that's not fellowship. There's a reason why they changed the word. You see, fellowship is, some of you here uh, served in our military and you went into battle and you've experienced war unlike I've ever experienced before. So I can hear you tell your stories, but that doesn't mean we had fellowship in it. I can honor you. I can be thankful for your service. I can be thankful for people's sacrifice. They gave their lives just so we could have the freedom to like meet here today and say whatever we want to say. And, and I, can, I can be humbled by that, appreciate, but I don't have fellowship in it because I haven't been to war. I haven't shared that experience. 
And so what Paul's saying here when he says participation in his suffering, saying, I want, if it helps me know you more, Jesus, then I'll, I'll suffer, I'll suffer the, like you suffered. When you say, I want to know Christ, are you there? That's convicting, isn't it? So I want to start becoming like him and his death to be transformed, to be more like my Savior. Gee, I want to know him. I know the power of his resurrection, of course, and, and, the, and the fellowship of his sufferings, the participation in that. And here's what we know from this. If you want to know Christ, you must encounter his cross. If you want to know Jesus Christ, you must encounter him at the cross of Christ. And that's what we're going to do today in John chapter 19. And so as you, if you have your Bibles, we continue in this series called Encounters. Today we're looking at a message called Encountering the Cross of Jesus Christ. And it's in John chapter 19. Now it's really hard for me to give you the context for John chapter 19 because let me tell you the, the context. Uh, all of human history, like everything leads to this moment. And so if you want the real context, you go back to Genesis, not just the creation account, but the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve, they saw the fruit on the tree, they eat of the fruit of the tree, even though God said don't do that. They had one rule, one rule, and they couldn't keep it. Sound like kids. <laughs> One rule. And then there's a curse. And the curse is work's going to be hard. You're going to be sweaty your brow. Uh, pregnancy is going to be pain in childbirth. Everything in life's going to be hard. And there's going to be death, separation. But Genesis 3.15, we get a promise. There's a, there's a Savior that's going to come. And then all throughout the Bible, what you see is every time there's like this significant figure that steps on the scene, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, David, whoever it is, it's always like, is he the one? Is he the one? And it's not the one, not the one, not the one. Until John chapter 1 and verse 29 when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's Jesus Christ. And then the context of that is then his whole life and ministry. So all the works he's done, all the people that he's helped, the teaching he's given, the demons he's cast out, the diseases he's healed. And then remember in John chapter 13 it slows down. And he's alone with his 12 disciples and he washes their feet, even Judas. And he says, One of you is going to betray me. And Judas leaves. You're all going to fall away. I'm leaving. But the Holy Spirit's going to come. You can't do this thing without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to come. And it's going to get worse. There's going to be persecution. But abide in me. You've got to know me. Abide in me. Stay in the vine. And then last week, Pastor Dave was preaching a message in John chapter 18 where Jesus is arrested. Judas shows up and betrays him. Peter denies him. Where we left off last week, that Jesus goes on multiple trials, but John's gospel really focuses in on the, the trial that he has with Pilate, the governor at the time for Rome over Jerusalem. And, and what's happened right before, what I'm about to read to you is that, that Pilate's trying to not make a decision for Jesus. Let me tell you something, those of you who are yet to follow Jesus, Jesus forces you to make a decision. You have to make a decision for Jesus. Even if you decide, I'm not going to make any decision for Jesus, you've decided. You've decided to reject him. See, Jesus forces us to decide. And that decision impacts eternity. If you want to know him, you've got to encounter him at the cross. And here we come to the cross, and what's happened is that Pilate's trying to not make a decision, and he's just brought up a guy named Barabbas, and he said, hey, should I release to you Barabbas? Should I release to you Jesus? Barabbas is a known insurrectionist. That means he's trying to overthrow Rome. He's known for murder, we read in one of the other gospel accounts. He's a robber, and he's just said about Jesus, I find no fault in this man. I find no guilt in him. You've accused him of, ironically, trying to be a king and overthrow Rome. And we got this guy we know has done that, but if I find no guilt in him, who do you want? Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Then look at John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It's a Roman scourging. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. 
I read this week, I never read this before. The purple robe may have just been a, a rug that was on the ground they threw on his flayed back. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they're mocking him. And they struck him with their hands, and Pilate went out again and said to them, to the crowd, now to the, there's the, basically the supreme court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin. There's 70 leaders there, plus the chief priests and the crowd of people. There's a lot of people that have seen this flogging. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So again, he says he's not guilty. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priest and the officer saw him, the chief priest, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, He's trying not to make a decision. Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt. Again, he says, I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. We'll pause right there. The cross of Christ does to us is it always brings conflict in our lives. And what John's doing is he's intentionally, as he gives us this encounter through the eyes of Pilate, showing a man who's in conflict, He's internally in conflict. He keeps, we're going to see him say in just a couple of verses, he's going to say, I have power to crucify you or release you. Oh yeah? Why don't you release him then, Pilate? Because you keep saying he's not guilty. Do you know why? Because there's conflict in his heart. And we've all had, some of you here are like, conflict? <laughs> I was just fighting with my spouse before I came in here, but I'm smiling right now, but we're in a fight. <laughs> like, I've done that, been there, done that. I remember one time going to church with Shanna, I wasn't preaching, it was a church we were attending, and we're going to sing this song, you know, Jesus paid it all or whatever, Jesus. And it's just like, oh, really? Are you worshiping? One of, one of us said to the other one, I won't say who said what. And <laughs> don't want to start another fight. Don't need another one. It's like conflict. We, know con- we can conflict over stupid stuff, don't we? I was thinking about this week. I got in a fight with my kids, a conflict with my kids over a bowl of cereal. My, my wife was at work already in the morning. I was taking them to school. And I don't know if your kids do this or not, but our, kid, our kids every morning, it's like they overestimate how much cereal they think they can eat. And they pour like this big mound of cereal in the bowl. And those of you who don't grocery shop, it's like $80 a box. And so you got this <laughs> mound of cereal there. And the kids have all gotten in the car. And so like that's a miracle in and of itself. And I was like, I'm taking a stand today. And that's where the conflict started because the bowl of cereal, I had about like 25% of it eaten. And I'm like, we're not leaving. So somebody eats this cereal. Whose bowl of cereal is this? Oh, we have more than one child. So I've now entered into an unsolvable mystery. Because we've got four kids, and they all start presenting their case of why it's not their bowl of cereal. Somebody's lying here in this moment. But it's like, I don't even use that kind of spoon. Like, have you heard these arguments? What happens in this? And it's like, I didn't eat cereal today. And it was, this one always does it. I don't like that kind of cereal. And it's like the, the, the fight's going, the conflict's happening. And then I decide I'm throwing down the gauntlet. I said, no one's going to school until this bowl of cereal gets eaten. Like, I don't care whose bowl of cereal it is. I don't care who eats it. It's not going to be me. Somebody's eating this cereal. Then all the personalities of my kids start rising up, right? Like one of them said, you can't tarnish her record. She's like, I can't be late for school. Like I got stuff to turn in. I can't miss school. I got another one. I won't tell you who, but another one who says, cool, we're not going to school today. It's like, okay, you got both on both ends of the spectrum. And they end up, you know what they ended up doing? Is they end up taming up on, the. I don't know if the little sister was really her bowl of cereal, but our youngest daughter, we got four, the youngest daughter ended up eating the bowl of cereal. And so I don't know if they just like did that and like now I'm gonna have to pay for therapy someday. I don't know. But the cereal got eaten and we kind of made it to school on time. But there's conflict. Conflict happens all the time, doesn't it? 
I could just present you with like two things and they'd be in con- like Android or Apple and there was a conflict. And UNC or NC State. Is that, most of you are going, there's no conflict. <laughs> you disagree about it, but there's no conflict. I have one friend, we were in a small group this past week and he was telling us, he, he played baseball at Duke. He was telling us about a time when he was uh, doing some work around a friend's house and he was sweating and out of breath and he was really thirsty and a friend came to him and offered him a glass of water but it was in a UNC cup. And he goes... I just can't. I just can't do it. <laughs> he didn't drink the water. Like I was like, you didn't drink the. You didn't drink the water. Inner conflict that happens in our hearts. Some of you this morning, you're at second service because you woke up and you. I was gonna go to first service, but you hit the snooze button. There was like, should I get out of bed or not get out of bed? And Paul tells us in Romans seven, there's the conflict of follow Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want to know Him. Same guy who says I want to know Christ. I don't. I do stuff I don't want to do. And there's this battle. And the cross always brings us to a place of conflict. And here's what it always brings to the surface, our fear. And there's always a conflict between fear and faith when you come to the cross. Are you going to submit to your fears in life? Are you going to trust God who's sovereign even over your fears? And there's a conflict. The cross brings us to the place of conflict between fear and faith. And that's what we see with Pilate in this passage of Scripture. Even going back into chapter 18, if you go back up into chapter 18 and start reading about verse 28, 29, and you read all the way through where we're going to stop today in verse 16, you see at least seven times it's stated or implied that he went in or he went out. And so he's like going into his palace, talking to Jesus, coming out, talking to the crowd seven times in just those short amount of verses. It's a physical picture of what's going on in his soul. He's a vacillating man. One moment, he's, not, he's innocent. I find no guilt in this man. Why don't you release him? Because I'm, I've got fear that's going on in my life. And you see it in verse 8. It said he's even more afraid. More afraid. That means he was afraid before. What's he afraid of? Well, we know from Matthew's account that his wife has actually sent a message to him. And his wife told him, before the day began, have nothing to do with that righteous man talking about Jesus. He's troubled me much in a dream. Now, guys, I don't know how many of you here are married. I don't know how long you've been married, but let me just tell you something. If your wife tells you something like that, like, listen to her. They know stuff we don't know. At least that's what I think. My wife's smarter than me. I just assume your wife is smarter than you. I hope. That gives me hope in life, okay? Just let's go with me on that. But sometimes, like, if your wife has like, got a gut feeling or something, it's like, right, I'm going to listen to that. And so he's already got that going in his life. And what you're going to see happen when we get over to the, the next part of this passage, around verse 12, 13, he says they, the people are going to press the button on him and they're going to, they're going to basically threaten his job. And say, you're no friend of Caesar's, which that's an official title, by the way. That's not just, hey, you don't like Caesar. It's, that's an official title of, like, you're not an ally of Caesar and he's kind of a paranoid dude. He'll kill you. And so he's got his wife who's caused fear in his life. You could call it his job. If you want to call it position, because that's easier for you to apply to your own life, you want to call it power, money, comfort. It's what he's been working for his whole life is at risk based on what decision he makes for Jesus. That's oftentimes true. And, and then you, you see here, just in verse 1, the fact that he has Jesus flogged before he sentences him to crucifixion, because flogging was part of the sentence to crucifixion. But he has them flogged here and then brings them back out. He's hoping that people will have pity on Jesus and they'll say, that's enough, let him go. He's a people pleaser. He's trying to come up with a conclusion that makes everybody happy. Now, if anybody here is a people pleaser, you know that doesn't actually exist. But when, you, when you're functioning in your fear of man, you try to come to those conclusions. How can I make everybody like me? 
He's got that going on. But then verse 8 said he's even more afraid. Not just those fears, not just his wife, not just his job. Oh, and by the way, in his job, he's basically on job probation. His mentor who got on this job as the governor has been killed for insurrection. His first day as the governor, the first time he goes to Jerusalem with the Jews, he's got no compassion, no idea on how to lead these people. He goes in there with graven images on his shields. That's like one of the big ten commandments for one of the Jews, by the way. No graven images. Then he threatens to kill them. That doesn't go well. Then he steals money from the temple treasury at a later date to try and do some building enhancements. Millions. That doesn't go well. Finally, what, the biggest thing that was like the last straw that he's about to lose his job anyways is that he put Tiberius' name on the shields after he already had the problem when he first started. And they send a letter to Tiberius and Tiberius says, take my name off the shields. You don't even know how to lead these people? Come on, you got to identify with the people. He doesn't have a clue. So there's already tension between the Pilate and the Jews and they've already gone above his head and his boss is already upset with them. And so then when they say, you're no friend of Caesar's, he's going to lose it all. He's trying to avoid making a decision for Jesus because all this fear in his life. You know what makes Pilate such a tragic figure in the Bible? Is that he knows the truth. I find no guilt in this man. Go through and count how many times he says that and how many times he tries to release Jesus. And he says, I've got power. No, you don't, because you're trapped by your fear. Amen. So you've got a king standing before you, and you could bow your knee to that king, but you don't even think of that option. See, Jesus forces a decision, and no decision is a decision. And the problem is that, that oftentimes, for many of us, when we're called to a step of faith, the fear of man comes in over that. And by the fear of man, I could, that could be your circumstances, it could be your job, it could be what other people think of you, it doesn't have to be a specific person you think is going to harm you. But uh, just to give you an illustration, I've done it in my own life. A couple weeks ago, I was out on a run, and usually when you hear pastors share a story about talking about the gospel, it's how they were bold, and then the person, they're sitting in the front row and they trusted Jesus today. That's not this story, just so you know. I was out on a run. I run by this guy. I'm jogging past this guy. He's hanging a sign. Because of the place that he was hanging the sign at, I guess I just judged him, or maybe the Lord laid it on my heart. I thought, that guy's definitely not a Christian. And so I start praying, God, will you make him sensitive to the gospel? I keep running. I get past him a little bit. And will you bring somebody into his life and share the gospel with him? <laughs> yeah, I'm about 50 yards past this guy, and the Lord goes, what about you? And I think, what am I going to go say? I think you're going to hell. Want me to tell you how you can avoid that? Like, that's not a real good conversation starter. And so, like, I start having this conversation with God in my mind as I'm running. I stop running. I go, all right, maybe I go up to him, and I'd say, I don't usually do this. But I think God laid out my heart to come talk to you. Maybe you've already made it, but maybe he'll think I'm a weirdo. I'd think I'm a weirdo. Like, I'm just like, hey, having this thought conversation in my head, I turn around, and he's gone. And I was like, yes! <laughs> I'm just being honest. I was relieved. I was relieved he was gone. You know why? Because I cared more about myself than I did about his eternal destiny. I was more afraid of what he might think. He's not going to chop my head off, probably, going to think about me that I'm worried about him. It was a fear of man in my life. So then I start talking to the Lord about that more, and I'm like, oh, maybe there'll be another. I don't even know. If I shared the gospel with him, I don't even know who he is. Like, I wouldn't even know there was a second chance. I blew it, but here's what I know. Here's what I know. I still have air in my lungs, so God's got a second chances. And so do you. You're still breathing here today. God's still got a plan for you. still going to use you. But why didn't I, why didn't I share the gospel with him? Was it my fear? And what does that mean? As I continued on that, that jog, I'm out talking to the Lord, and 
So thinking about, you know, what I dream about for our church is that we'd be like the church in Acts and, and that we would, they, it says in the book of Acts, they literally turned the world upside down. But if you start examining them, they're just ordinary people. But you know what they did? And this is what God convicted my heart of. He said, when, when I spoke to them, they, they listened. They'd follow my leading. So they were bold of their faith, not because they were just like these brash, bold people, but if I laid it on their heart to do something, then they would do it. And so then the conviction was, you want your church to be that way? How are you going to lead the church somewhere you're not willing to go? Like, you have to listen to me. You have to step out by faith. And faith is not just, I believe this stuff. It always ends up in action. I was having lunch with a guy this week, and he was telling me his story. He wanted to join our church, and so he was just telling me how he came to know Jesus and what God did in his life. And, and he ended up telling me, he said, I used to hear people say God would speak to them, and I'd always think, that's weird. What is that even like? What are you talking about? And he said, and then one day I was driving in my car, and God impressed on my heart that I needed to stop and make a phone call. This was before cell phones. <laughs> Some of you, there was a time before cell phones, just FYI. <laughs> he actually had to use a payphone. We used to have these little, little metal things. They were called coins. <laughs> have you heard of that? Anyway, uh, but he, when he used a, a payphone, he made a phone call that changed the direction of his life. See, sometimes when we think about taking faith steps, we just think about like, who am I going to marry? Uh, where am I going to live? Should I quit my job and start another job? Should I empty my savings account? Because I think that missionary is doing great work, and that's like the huge steps of faith in our life. But what about the steps in like the mundane things of life? They can change everything. Somebody's eternal destiny, the direction of your life. And he listened. And then I started thinking about heroes of faith in the Bible. Like what if Moses, when, when God was going to part the Red Sea, if God said, I'm going to part the Red Sea, and Moses was like, that's cool. What else? And like didn't step out and cross the Red Sea. See, faith always takes action. What about Joseph? Joseph in the Bible, you know, he's got this gift of being able to interpret dreams. What if he just knew when somebody told their dreams, what it meant, but he never shared it. Because you know what happens? He doesn't use it right all the time. He uses it kind of in an arrogant way at the beginning and gets arrested. Gets, but he ends up, God ends up using it for the saving of many lives, or Genesis chapter 50, because he takes action with it. Abraham, what if Abraham was like, hey, God told me I'm supposed to leave my home and I don't even know where I'm supposed to go, but I'm just going to see if there's like a second option. I'm going to hang out. I believe in God, but I'm just going to wait and see what happens. He had to take action. He had to step out and do some Peter, get out of the boat. Like, listen to this about for Moses. Moses in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 28 on the screen, it says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Here's why. Because that they thought that this child was beautiful. <laughs> what parent doesn't think their child is beautiful? Everybody thinks a baby's beautiful. Babies are kind of funny looking, but whatever. <laughs> and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So there was faith and not fear. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had all the privileges, all the rights. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, who's going to make this choice, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Somebody who believes, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. This is like Philippians 3 from Moses' perspective. He, I'll know Christ even in his sufferings. Greater wealth. How did he know Christ? He's promised in Genesis 3. Greater wealth in the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's about more than just this place. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid. There's faith over fear. The danger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, there's a good fear. It's the fear of God. It's called the beginning of wisdom. But when we fear man, that's not what that is. There's a bad fear. It's an unhealthy fear that, tr that oftentimes in our lives trumps faith. And so God leads us into some, some of you, the situation might be that you've got a group of friends that when you get together with them, they sin. And maybe it's gossip or slander or it's the 
things that you watch, whatever the things might be, and God has gripped your heart that that's not, that's not pleasing to him. But you don't stop because you don't want to lose the friends. That's the fear of man. When you stop, even though you lose the friends, what are you doing? You're clinging to the promises. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. Me, about being bold in my faith. And talk about being bold in my faith, and I blow an opportunity. Don't I know the scripture that says, you don't need to plan out the conversation. I'm going to give you the word. Step out and have the conversation. But fear trumped that in that moment. For some of you, maybe it is financial. Some of you know what God has commanded you and called you to do. Why won't you do it? See, when you come to the cross, it brings these things to the surface. And one of the things it brings to the surface is fear. The other thing that comes into conflict is the cross. It brings the, brings the culmination, brings this conflict in our lives about who's the ultimate authority in our lives. So our second point, the cross of Jesus confronts us with our ultimate authority. The cross of Jesus confronts us with our ultimate authority. And so here's Pilate. We left him in verse 8 where he's even more afraid. And then, you know, oftentimes when we're fearful, there's some predictable responses for people. Some people grasp for control. That's their thing. Some people avoid and they'll just try and avoid the whole situation, forget that it exists. Some people try to escape. Some people try to compromise. Pilate tries all of them. So if you look at him, he compromises having Jesus flogged. Tries to avoid it, you crucify him. Tries to escape, tries to get out of the situation, and then here what we see is anger. A lot of times when we're afraid, we get angry. Look at what he does next. So he has this conversation about authority. He entered his headquarters, so he goes back in, again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you know who I am? It's like puffing out his chest here. And I imagine Jesus was really calm in his response. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. He's talking about his father. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so he's not saying, Pilate, you're not guilty of sin here. You're still guilty of sin. He's just saying, you know, the, the chief priests, the Jews, Judas, they've got a greater sin. I thought all sins were the same. Not according to Jesus. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Can't you just picture Pilate? Like here, I'm not, I don't have anything to do with this guy. And I'm, you guys crucify him. I'm going back into my palace. You're not Caesar's friend. All right, coming back. He's in conflict. If you're not released this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Remember when Jesus was introduced? See how John does this in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. What is it? It's a day of preparation for the Lamb, for the Passover Lamb. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your King. Jesus, already flogged and beaten, standing there. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, and again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your King? And the chief priest answered. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he, talking about Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so 
here we've got a conflict of authority. I know, I know most of us, we don't like authority, kind of what you're taught from whether it's the 70s, the 80s, whenever it was. Here's what you do with authority, you question it. You just question authority. And people debate, like sociologists talk about, did that start in the 70s or 80s? Or did that start in the 60s? Or did that start in the, something go all the way back to the 40s? Can I tell you when it started? Genesis 3. <laughs> okay? It wasn't just a shiny piece of fruit on the tree. Eve wanted to be like God. She wanted to be her own authority. She thought God was holding out on her. And we've all done it since. So I know that universally, no one here likes authority. Because we all think authority is going to try and control us and impress us and do things to us. But most of us haven't experienced the authority like what we see from our king, Jesus, here, which is an authority with love. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came on a mission to seek and save the lost. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came that you could have life. He came for your sake, not his own. He's already in control. He holds the universe together. But he wants relationship. He wants you to know him. So it's a different kind of authority. And Pilate's already been confronted with a different kind of king. If my kingdom were of this world, we'd be fighting. It's a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of sacrifice. And Pilate doesn't bow his knee to that king. Instead, what you see is a conflict in his heart about who is his king. And you see it come to its climax when he's, he's talking to the people. And they say, you're no friend of Caesar's. And so Pilate has to answer the question, who's your king? Is it your job? Is it your wife? Is it your people pleasing? Is it your comfort? Is it your money? And I'll just ask you, who's your king? Who's the ultimate authority in your life? Because your ultimate authority is whoever directs your decisions, by the way. And so that's why I love the response by the Jews here. It's a terrible response. We have no king but Caesar. But how incredible that they're able to be honest with themselves. Because do you realize what this means? For a Jew, they were to only have one king, and it wasn't David. It wasn't Saul, it wasn't Solomon, it was God himself. Even when he gives them a king in the Old Testament, the king is just supposed to point them to their ultimate leadership, God. In fact, let me read you this verse from Isaiah in the Old Testament. O Lord, our Lord, Isaiah 26, 13. O Lord, our Lord, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They would do this thing called the Hallel, where they would read the Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. At the end of it, they always prayed the same prayer. I'm going to read it to you. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Beside thee, we have no king, no redeemer or savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. It's a regular part of the Jewish faith. We have one king, and it's God. Now, let me read to you again who says this. The chief priest, this is verse 15, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. It's an outright denial of God. On behalf, in front of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the masses, on behalf of all the people, we got one king and he's Caesar. You know why this is great? This is great, not because he denies God, because he's being honest about what his life is already declaring through their desire to crucify Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. It's a tough question. You don't have to verbally answer it. But if you had to verbalize, what your life already declares about this question, what would you say? Who is your king? Is it money? Is it your time? Is it some other person that you're trying to please? Maybe even a dead parent or a spouse or just you want everybody to like you. Who's your king? Is it Jesus? Because if it's Jesus, do you realize here this passage declares to us we have a crucified king, 
Do you see what Pilate said to them? He's the king of the Jews. You, shall I crucify your king? And the answer is yes. Not because Pilate has authority, but because God does. You have no authority, Pilate, to crucify him, but the authority that's been given to you. And so our king willingly is crucified. And that's the kind of authority in our lives who loves you. Do you realize what that means? A lot of times when we talk about the cross, we talk about like this sentimental picture. We put it on buildings and we wear it on our necklaces and earrings and things. And, but the cross, that was, a, that was a horrific execution instrument. It was, it was originally orchestrated by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. The goal of it was the slowest and most painful death possible. And we put it on public display. Like when we have the death penalty, we're kind of clinical, take somebody in behind the closed doors. It's not like we're broadcasting this. Thing. They're trying to show everybody, don't rebel against Rome. And you think about where Jesus is at already up until this point. And back in chapter 18, last week, Pastor Dave was preaching. He gets arrested. Then they take him and at midnight, which by the way, they're not supposed to have a trial at night. All the trials were, were faulty trials. They take him at midnight to the chief priest's place. And then these henchmen, these guards, start playing a game with him called Blind Man's Bluff. And blind man's bluff is they put a blindfold over Jesus and they punch him in the face. And they take the blindfold off and they go, you're the Messiah, tell us who hit you. And he doesn't, he doesn't say a word. He's being beaten for you. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14 says that he's beaten beyond recognition of a human. So his face is so swelled you wouldn't even recognize him as a man. Because they just keep putting the blindfold on and they hit him. And they hit him again. And they hit him again. And that was for fun. They think they're just mocking this guy who claims to be a king. And then he stands trial and goes before Pilate. And remember in verse 1, in verse 1, it says they flogged him. We just read past that. Like, oh, he's flogged. Like, that must have hurt a little bit. The flogging was actually an execution for some. There's two different kinds of floggings. There's a Jewish flogging and there's a Roman flogging. The Jewish flogging, Paul talks about, that he received five times, 40 lashes minus one. You read that in 2 Corinthians. Because the Jewish flogging meant you had to limit how many lashes you gave someone when you were, flag- when you were uh, whipping their back. He's getting a Roman flogging. There's no limit. And so the Jew- 40 lashes was considered a death penalty, execution. You want to know why Jesus can't carry the cross? He's halfway dead when he gets there. And so he brings out, when he brings out this man who's been beaten and he's been flogged, he goes... I find no guilt. He's asking for pity, Pilate is. He's like, don't you see what I've already done to this guy? Because for the flogging, what they would do for the flogging is it was a professional torturer that would inflict this. He had what was called a cat of nine towels. I don't want to be overly graphic, but I want you to know what your Savior went through for you. It was like a 14 to 18 inch stick and it had nine leather straps that were attached to it. At the end of those leather straps was bone and metal and glass. And they bring Jesus out over this pillar that was about knee high it might be wood, it might be stone uh, pillar that was there. And they'd strap his ankles in and strap his, his wrists in so that his back skin was super tight, so he could be efficient with the flogging. And then the lictor would take that cat of nine tails, he'd stand about four feet away from Jesus, he'd pull it back and whip it over his back so that the leather hits his back, but the metal and the bone hits him in the chest. And any trained lictor, torturer, is going to then hook it like a fish and pull it across his back. The first one could send him into shock. Most people were in shock after three or four. And the, the limit for Roman scourging was when the lictor's tired, not the guy who's getting flogged. No limit, 40 is considered death. No limit. Jesus, if he was like most men, would pass out from three or four of these. Then they'd pour salt water on his back and they continue. 
He wouldn't go too low because he'd rip out his intestines. He doesn't want him to die there. He wants this to be painful. And so he keeps doing it over and over and over again. This is before the cross. This is before the cross. This is like preparation. You want to know why Jesus can't carry the cross? It's halfway dead already. And then what happens later in this chapter is that Pilate writes, his crime, he's the king of the Jews. And the Jews say, no, no, no. Say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Don't say that he's the king of the Jews. He said, you want to crucify your king? He said, what I've written, I've written. And they put king of the Jews over his head. And there'd be four men that would escort him down this walkway with not his whole cross. A cross would weigh about 250 pounds. So the, most of these criminals, Jesus isn't a criminal, he's found no guilt in him, but most of the criminals who carry a cross would carry the cross beam. So Jesus probably just carried the beam of the cross, about 100 pounds. Can't carry it, but they make their way and they get to Golgotha. And then what would happen is they'd nail the cross together. Those four men would put the pieces together. The centurion that was leading over top of this, and then there were four men for one thief and four men for the other thief. So there's 12 guys that are there, and plus a centurion and, and all these people that are there to be able to see it. They intentionally do it outside the city, so lots of people will pass by, they'll see all this. And then they go to nail Jesus to the cross. First they grab his right arm, then they grab his left arm. Two guys on each arm, they pin his elbow down, and they take a nail that's about four inches long, square nail, about three quarters of an inch thick, and they put it right at the base of his palm and nail it through his wrist so that it would hold his body. See, a lot of people when they were crucified, they weren't nailed to the cross. They'd tie them to the cross. And the way that they died was suffocation, dehydration. Some people would drown in their own fluid of their own lungs. And so some people just died of exhaustion. They couldn't lift themselves up anymore. But if you nailed somebody to the cross, it'd go a little bit faster because they'd probably bleed to death or die of cardiac arrest. Isn't that interesting for our Savior? They nail him to the cross. First his right arm, then his left arm. And I read this week that where they would put that nail would cause a nerve damage that would, that would mean if somebody just touched you, put cloth on you or wind blew on you, it would be like terrible torture. And so this has happened. And oh, by the way, in between the flogging and the cross, they put a thorn crown on his head, about three and a half inch thorns on that crown. They put that robe on his back, his flayed back. They've torn it back off. He's there naked to shame him. And they put him on this cross. They nail him to the cross. They haven't nailed his feet yet because what they have to do is they have to lift the cross up and carry it over this little hole in the ground. Now, a lot of times when you see an image of the cross, it looks like it's like 10 feet up in the air. Jesus went 10 feet up in the air. They didn't crucify people way up in the air like that. It's probably about four feet off the ground. He's just dangling, being hung by his arms at this moment. And they're going to take it over to this hole in the ground that's about two feet deep. And they're going to drop it in that hole. And he's going to end up being about two feet off the ground. That's why he's able to speak to his mother and John while he's on the cross. That's why people can hear him say, because right after they drop him in the hole in the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's able to speak. And isn't it interesting as you hear the words of our Savior on the cross, not just the physical torture he goes through, but he's got you on his mind. He's thinking about other people. Thinking about his mom. Thinking about these, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's thinking about these other, the people he's dying for. Father, forgive them, the very executioners that are nailing him to the cross. So they take him over to this hole in the ground. And when they drop the cross in that hole, every bone in his body would pop out of place. Tertullian, the historian, tells us that at that moment, many men went insane because of the pain. But the terrible part about Jesus being crucified is not the physical stuff I've shared with you. You get it from the words that he shares on the cross. Ultimately, when he quotes Psalm 22, which was written well before the Persians had ever invented crucifixion, and he starts out, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken by his father. The two are one. The father forsakes him because he becomes sin so that you could become righteousness. 
That's what's happening at the cross. That's your king. And yes, he's risen. We'll talk about that next week. But you have a crucified king. And he was crucified. That's the, because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. So you said at the beginning of the service, some of you, I want to know Christ. I do, I do. I do want to know Christ. And I read Philippians chapter 3 and I go, but sharing in that suffering? I don't, I don't know if I'm that. But knowing it must be so good. He'd be the ultimate treasure in our lives. He should be the ultimate authority in our lives too. He's worthy to be submitted to. Even when the fear rises up. And each one of us have our own buttons and different things that we fear. But let me just ask you this. Who is your king? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God. He doesn't just demand things from us, but gave. That you loved us so much that you gave your son. And that your son loved us so much that he gave his life. And Father, I pray if there's anybody here that's not sure if they should surrender their life to Jesus, that you'd overwhelm them today with how much love your son Jesus has for them. And he knows their questions and their concerns, but God, I pray they'd be able to overcome those fears today and place their faith in your son Jesus Christ.